Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. We're sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights, and you can find out more about our podcast, as well as Lisa and myself, by going to our landing page on Corporate Compliance Insights. Just search Great Woman in Compliance when you go to corporatecompliance.insights.com. Today's guest is Harper Wells, who is the Chief Compliance Officer at Learning Pool. Welcome to the podcast, Harper. Please tell us about yourself. Thank you so much, Mary. First of all, I have to say it's amazing to be here. I listen to GWIC and I love hearing all of the episodes and I'm always so impressed by all the incredibly intelligent compliance people out there. So I'm always learning something from your podcast. You're welcome. I am Harper. I've spent nearly two decades in governance, risk, and compliance, and I am based in San Diego, California. I spent most of my career in energy, and there I started out in corporate governance, where I was responsible for a wide array of M&A and overseeing various business units. And really, I loved that job. My favorite part of that job was the M&A activity, learning the process, being on the deal teams. But corporate governance was actually a fantastic place for me to start. Mm. really gave me a great foundation of really understanding organizational structure and how companies operate compliantly. Yeah. And then I moved over to enterprise risk management, where Mm -hmm. I did a bunch of risk advisory activities. So I did everything from contract reviews to insurance and risk advisories. We had giant risk and we had giant insurance towers to legal special projects that were deeply involved with things like forensic accounting and financial positioning as it related to a large litigation that the company was facing. And then after that, I made my way to compliance and I was like, I am. Mm. I, it's something that I realized almost immediately. I love this role. I love what I'm doing. And I have never looked back. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, I now serve as the chief compliance officer of Learning Pool. And Learning Pool is a global learning tech company, and they're based in Derry, Ireland. Cool. Thank you so much. And it was amazing to pack almost two decades into that summary. Well done. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I'd love to hear about the differences when working in compliance for a service provider compared with other companies. Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually face this all the time. But first, I'll say for the record that a CCO is a CCO no matter what side of the mm-hmm. fence you're on. It's not always the case that a service provider has a chief compliance officer, but I am one. I am responsible for overseeing our internal compliance program. I have definitely found myself put in that like training vendor bucket. And Mm -hmm. I have had to demonstrate that I have in fact been and continue to be on our client's side of the table, Mm -hmm. things that I'm dealing with in my day to day. But I'm so excited to be at Learning Pool. We really are progressive and believe in painting the future picture of compliance learning. I also aim to exceed that vision internally with my own program and and Mm -hmm. at our company. I'm actually their first CCO. Mm -hmm. So it's a real greenfield opportunity for me to build a best-in-class program. And, mm-hmm. and I had influence all the way from how I'm organized within the organization. I report directly to our executive chair, for mm-hmm. example. So I have a direct line to the board, all the way to aligning our program with DOJ guidance. So you definitely mm-hmm. can't claim that we don't take ethics and compliance seriously. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's a really great that they're demonstrating their commitment to compliance internally. And I've already been doing a ton of work. Again, I'm in a decentralized environment where I Mm -hmm. have functional area owners of things that I'm helping to partner with and work through. But being a CCO at a service provider was actually one of the things that intrigued me about Mm -hmm. coming over, although it was scary. That is... I have the unique opportunity to help shape compliance program evolution for Mm. thousands of organizations Mm -hmm. versus just mine. Like mine is great to oversee. It's It's super appealing. And as an aside, I'm also really lucky that we're a learning tech company. Mm. That means I can leverage all of the awesome tech that we have without having to plead for it in my budget. Yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit. So one of the things that the first thing that I thought of, and you mentioning that tech access is one that I had considered, but of course, was it, I think you probably need less buy-in, right? Because the last thing you need is a vendor in the space being hypocritical about absolutely how important compliance is. It's literally walking the talk. And essentially, if I'm speaking, whether it's a peer or Mm -hmm. whether it's a client, it's I'm in your spot. I've actually done this before Mm -hmm. about something abstract. Nice. And I now have to ask, what was scary that you mentioned about coming over? I think really for me, I am used to being at large organizations. Mm -hmm. My career, I went from 2,000 employees to 35,000 employees Mm -hmm. going to a private company, public company with not even a thousand employees, right? Mm. It just It was a little scary mm. to, to go to small from large enterprise to small private. And mm. so I think I was just a little bit unsettled with that at first, but I'm so glad I made the decision. I have just learned so much, been able to do so much and, and have met some incredible people along the way. Nice. All of that sounds fantastic. And your parent company is across all different types of education, not just compliance. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in relation to learning and education at the moment generally? Yeah, we definitely are huge in L&D. I think Mm -hmm. in L&D specifically, we've seen the chaos that's been the last couple of years Mm -hmm. having organizations and the people who work for them reevaluating what it means to be agile and adaptable Mm. if they're to meet tomorrow's challenges successfully. As a result, we're working with a lot of organizations on providing their employees access to skills assessment and development that keep them competitive. What the data is telling us is that a highly skilled workforce is more resilient in the face of change Mm. and most equipped to seize the moment when an opportunity presents itself. So it's really about being bendy and being Mm. resilient these days. Mm. So that's why learning and development that fosters skills acquisition can't uh, be tailored any longer to just like specific job titles, like Mm. training related to what the present job description that you're doing is. So what we're seeing and what we're working with organizations on is that entities are giving employees access to skills that are in line with what the employee actually wants to do Mm. or things they want to do down the road and therefore what skills they need to do next, Mm. not what they've already done. So Mm. it's really about unlocking the full potential of people and giving them access to improve or upskill or reskill and evolve their role. And hopefully it's at your company, right? That makes it stickier. But I, on the compliance end of this, it does connect. So L&D, I think this also fits quite neatly under the S in ESG, Mm -hmm. which is the social aspect of it. How are organizations empowering their Mm -hmm. people? It's really, yeah, it's really cool to see. 
Yeah, I think that the S when it comes to our own people is something that organizations forget. And Alison Taylor did a really great post recently on LinkedIn about how Starbucks is from a, how to say, a third party perspective, quite good about their supply chain and so on, making commitments there that don't seem outrageous and that they take it seriously but then that they had concerns about employees joining trade association. You can't on the one hand say I'm super proactive about ESG because you don't happen to have forced labor in your supply chain, (laughs) but you may not treat employees with the same levels of respect. And I'm not necessarily referring directly to Starbucks when I say that. I don't work for the organization. I don't know what goes on there. But I think more generally... That is something that organizations are going to have to look out for when they're making their ESG commitments, that they're not just focused on what they publicly say is one of the things that they're good at, but being really honest with themselves and asking from a 360 degree angle, are we living the values that we say that we are? And with respect to ESG, I think that I think a little bit scary is that a lot of organizations are like thinking this, thinking about it as it's like a data and metric gathering and disclosure Mm -hmm. practice or exercise Mm -hmm. versus really thinking about how those things are operationalized within their business. And also like you're referring to, it's like treating it almost like the the analogy of a paper program in compliance. Mm -hmm. Say you're Mm -hmm. doing great things, but then at Mm -hmm. the same time you're turning around and you're not supporting your... Mm -hmm. Agreed. And that's actually a really fantastic segue when it comes to measuring and gathering data to my next question. I was going to ask you about what are your favorite KPIs for the training aspect of a compliance program? Ah, first of all, it's pretty funny that we're talking about favorites and KPIs in the same section, in the same sentence. We're absolutely compliance nerds, but it's true. And I'm (laughs) down, I'm here for it. I definitely use KPIs, key performance indicators to monitor whether my training is working in practice. And it starts with really how we tailor training based on our compliance risk assessment to whom it goes to like roles and functions and what our speak up culture is like around certain compliance risk areas and whether financial and other transactions reflect a population that knows the right thing to do. With our KPIs, we span across the gamut of financial transactions to speak up culture to to who we're tailoring training to on our assessment and the latest best practice from guidance. But I use KPIs alongside KRIs, key risk Mm -hmm. indicators. I think Mm -hmm. when practitioners talk KPIs and KRIs, many, many practitioners use them interchangeably, or they just say we use metrics or quantifiable metrics. I do want to distinguish between the two because KPIs, KRIs, sorry, provide all these acronyms, um, (laughs) risk indicators, let me spell it out, provide an early warning and key performance indicators measure performance. So when Mm -hmm. you think key performance indicators overall, it's like a value that demonstrates whether you're achieving strategic objectives. It's really a lagging indicator. It's a hindsight metric. What have we done and how is that pointing to whether we're effective? But I like to bring in KRIs also because it's a metric that is like your early... your early signal and if there's increasing exposure. So it's, I'm definitely a proponent for both in the program. People are probably mm-hmm. using both already and don't realize mm-hmm. that one is a key performance indicator and one is a mm-hmm. key risk indicator. KPIs, again, they measure outcome, but is what you're doing working? Mm-hmm. I really like the collection of KPIs and KRIs. It's like a classic detective story. Each clue that you get adds mm-hmm. to the ability to get to the right outcome. That's 
fine when we talk about adding and contextualizing and triangulating or layering data. It's so important. I evaluate the KPIs, data points like how often the business is approving policy exceptions and how targeted higher risk populations perform in simulation and how both of those are trending over time. So if I see something in simulation as an example where there are some clarity issues or learner readiness issues, for example, I may do a little bit of a deeper dive on that to see if there's a particular functional area or role or someone who needs to know it or we're mm-hmm. in tr- whether there needs to be reinforcement there. So I take these predictive red flags and mm-hmm. I pro- plan reinforcement and compliance drip around it. And sometimes it may be just about like simply reinforcing awareness around mm-hmm. a particular process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about embedding an additional control in mm-hmm. a process. It just depends on what where the data takes me. Cool. Thank you very much. And then you obviously, as you alluded to earlier, you get to have a lot of touch points of other compliance offices and programs. What's something novel that you've seen a client do with their compliance training recently that you thought was a cool idea? Yes. Again, cool and compliance. I love it. <laughs> Definitely the coolest thing our clients are doing lately is automating training with artificial mm-hmm. intelligence learning paths. So we have some clients who are leveraging AI training fully targeted to each individual who takes the course. So for those who manage training who are listening, it's a single SCORM file that's uploaded to HRIS, but it changes what the learner sees based on past individual performance. So let's say, yeah, so let's say me and you, we both took ABAC, another acronym, anti-barbarian corruption training last year. This year, we are scheduled for an AI learning path. We will receive a notification, mm-hmm. same with training, but then the reactive AI algorithms will look back at how each of us did mm. and then deploy us exactly the topics or the concepts that we need, mm-hmm. which, so what you get could be completely different than what I get. Mm. Both of us spend around five minutes in there, tailored to where we needed the most bespoke feedback active coaching and reinforcement. I love this idea because if you think about doing this on your own manually, the sheer workload of giving all your employees (laughs) exactly what each person needs would be Mm -hmm. a crazy burden. Like we'd never do it. We'd never Mm -hmm. get around to doing anything else. Mm -hmm. This automates it so that the only lift from the compliance team is really wanting to wanting them to set parameters of like mm. how many topic areas or categories do you want the person to see what is the proficiency level that's triggered mm. someone in the 90th percentile of proficiency mm-hmm. it's really a light lift and when you think about why it's cool if you think about us deploying training year mm-hmm. after year especially those trainings on an annual cycle i liken this to like the Adam Sandler, 50 first dates, or the Bill Murray Groundhog's Day, depending Mm -hmm. on how old you are. So I like bring up both, right? But it's like doing the same thing over again. So it's like, hey, Mm -hmm. Mary, it's the compliance team. Welcome to your Mm -hmm. conflict of interest training. We're going to tell you a little bit about third parties and gifts and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And then like, cool, I'll go through it. And then next year, it's, hey, Mary, it's the Mm -hmm. compliance team. Welcome to conflict (laughs) training. We're going to tell you a little bit about gifts and whatever I just said. And you're like, I like already, like, I already know this stuff. I just like it like 11 months ago. And and so it's really about respecting people's time and Mm -hmm. their knowledge and still tailoring at the same time. Nice. I like that a lot. And the use of AI, I think, is going to further, obviously, impact our compliance programs along with data analytics and behavioral science as we go on. So it's cool to see real life examples of this taking shape because a lot of the time when you hear, oh, data analytics or oh, behavioral science or 
AI and then you're like, okay, cool. I agree with you that we should do this. How do I do it? So having the ability to just go in there and get started on something like that, I think that's very cool. Thank you for sharing. You got it. So we're going to nerd out a little bit further. Matt Kelly recently wrote a piece on testing out of training, which is the concept that some companies are, by means of a proportionality measure, incorporating a quick test at the beginning of training modules. And if employees can answer all of the questions correctly, that signals that they have sufficient knowledge in that area and don't need to don't require further education at this time and are essentially waived from taking the course. Matt raised a number of considerations in relation to this idea. I'd love to hear from someone that's really in this space, two feet in and dealing with a lot of different clients and learning. What are your thoughts on testing out and are you seeing many companies deploy this approach? Yeah, I think that this tailors exactly what into into what we were just talking about, which is mm-hmm. respecting employees for their knowledge right. and expertise. First of all, a huge fan of Matt Kelly and radical compliance. Sign up now if you're not if you're mm-hmm. not receiving that. I love that he covered this topic, not just really as broad discussion, but he even brought in his own personal experience going through this like 10 question quiz while he was at a publicly traded company. I really do want to point out first that in this article, I appreciate Matt's point about being tested on generic legal requirements versus mm-hmm. company-specific policies. Yeah. Because there is plenty of evidence around us to suggest, and I talk about the Ethisphere's Culture Quotient data set that did a great survey study on this, to suggest that training that resonates with employees that's tailored to their roles and is not legalese is going to connect them better with the organization, but also with compliance in general. So all organizations should be thinking about what specific roles are going to encounter in their day-to-day. And again, mm-hmm aligning with DOJ too. But I want to just, before I give my opinion, want I want to call a spade here. And this may be a little bit controversial to some, but when I think about why we have test outs in the first place, I just, when I think about it, it's, let's be honest, someone at some point had the bright idea, whether it be through upstream pressure from leadership or like downstream agita to, to cut back on training seat and reduce the seat time. Mm-hmm. So what did we do? We're like, okay, we can totally cut training time. Let's just develop a quiz and put some passing score on it. And then those that pass don't have to take the training. But then those that don't, if they miss a question, they get dropped into a 45 minute training. Like, mm-hmm. can you imagine the agita for those people? A lot of companies are still doing this for sure. I think when you talk about organizations, especially that have a ton of employees who are really trying to scale their program, you you see this still taking place. In fact, I just attended an executive roundtable at CEI and this very subject came up. Our company was asked whether we do test outs over the last several years. And we were always like, no, we don't do this. Mm. But then we started to think about why people, what their goal is and what they're trying to achieve. And then we thought, how can we start to think about to do how we can do this better. I do think that respecting people's time, knowledge and experience is really important. I agree with Matt here and the individual that he interviewed. I not only is the traditional test out a cognitive loophole, as Matt describes in his article, it also has potential regulatory implications. And so we developed a solution for our clients. So I'm going to call it the modern form of a mm-hmm. test out. I don't even like the word test out, but we call it intelligent recertification, but it saves time, but it still gives behavior-based, relevant, mm-hmm. learn by doing scenarios, active coaching and feedback and remediation only when needed. And it still gives the compliance team 
insight into areas of opportunity and strength. So mm. teams can leverage the data and mm. program plan and keep meaningful trend data going. That certainly helps when it's, why did you cut this training from a traditional training to mm. only giving people eight minutes worth? And it's like, mm. here's what the data is showing us. Mm. Population is extremely proficient in these areas. We have these other communications campaigns going. It's not just about what's taking place in learning. Mm. It's about what's taking place in the broader communications campaign and compliance strip generally as well. So mm. it's something our, our clients are definitely using. One person in the CEI executive roundtable referred to it as a test down, not a test out. She said, <laughs> do something similar. But yeah, I think that for those listeners who are in the, who are doing the traditional test out, like we, I totally understand why you're doing it. It, There's definitely, we wanted to do it differently whereby you were still having remediation Mm -hmm. and risk mitigation and being able to, it's all about data, being able to have that data to be able to substantiate why you're doing what you're. So if I can just draw from my understanding, the main difference between the test out that Matt described and what you're offering is when you get something wrong, you don't necessarily get dropped into the entire course. You would only be fed the content, the learning content and any learning aids that apply to that particular subject. So That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Super bespoke, depending on the learner's actual needs rather than waiving them from the entire test, which I get nervous about. And I think it's going to be problematic from the perspective of if someone doesn't end up taking compliance training for, say, five, six years because they've been successfully testing out, the problem then becomes is there's a pattern of just not giving them compliance training at all. And I'm not sure how comfortable I would be proffering that to a regulator or if you're under a monitorship, how that might look. I I like that this feels proportionate, customized to the person. Yeah, I would have concerns about just years of someone not getting training and there are loopholes that could be taken advantage of someone passing out the answers to all of their friends. And then you've got like a whole crew of people who are not taking training at all for years on end because one of them is taking one for the team and figuring out the answers and sharing them. I think there's a little bit too much to be taken advantage of there. The optics don't look great of just not reminding people and processes change so much as well, right? The year in which the FCPA was enacted, probably not going to change, but of course, who needs to know about that? So you should be training on it anyway. Same as what HIPAA stands for. No one needs to actually know the acronyms full explanation but you do need Let to know the requirements there are employees exactly so if you're asking that kind of rubbish anyway it's probably not super effective but remembering things like policies changing thresholds being adjusted in gme and right. so on uh, right. topical things coming out of investigations that yes. people need to learn about that kind of stuff you probably can't go five years without mentioning it so i have a general unease about testing out is my view. I do the proportional or proportionate, I should say, that you've mentioned. And I think that's a lot safer. If I were to do the testing out, I think I'd only be comfortable with a test out for say every second year, perhaps that's a possibility so that at least there is a regularized cadence of some training and education that is current going out to employees. And me personally, I do take, I don't want to say it's a more conservative approach, but I, and my organization first with the, let's call it the full training, five minute Mm -hmm. training so that I can see across concepts Mm -hmm. and understand 
how people are performing and especially those high risk roles and functions. I want to drill down and understand because it's we're not just going to kitchen sink send this modern form of test out or this intelligent recertification everyone. I'm only going to send it if I think the data warrants it. So it's not just, oh, I want to save you time. I want to be able to have the insight to say Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. we're doing it this way. And again, I couldn't agree with you more on testing on laws and regs versus testing on behaviors and things that are completely specific to your own organization or the things that your employees are going to face in their day to day. Mm -hmm. The more that you can make it relevant to what people are doing, the better. And so we we do have clients have different paths based on Mm -hmm. roles or functions, based on self-identifiers, new things open that go a little bit deeper on particular Mm -hmm as an example. So that's definitely widely used as well. I'm almost disappointed that we're aligned on this, Harper, because when we had professional producers assisting Lisa and myself at the beginning of launching the podcast, they did say that controversial discussions are juicy, get more listenership, but maybe some of our listeners who are very strong on test outs are feeling suitably annoyed at our conversation right now and want to write us a sternly worded email. Please direct all of those to Harper. Yes. uh, Mary Shirley, everyone. Mary Shirley. I'm sure there are people right now that are like, who the heck does she think she is right now telling me that a test out doesn't work or isn't effective? Yeah. They're just not our favorite is what we're saying. We're not, they're not our favorite. I think that there's always, there's, that will align with the reasoning and we'll just take it up a notch. 2022, Mm -hmm. almost 2023, if you can believe it. So uh, keep let's keep giving ourselves meaningful meaningful insight for our organization mm-hmm. wonderful and my last question for you it totally goes off our training soapboxes so please okay. kindly step off what are your top words of encouragement for our GWIC community who are not legally trained and aspire to a chief compliance officer role? interesting I love this question wow I think a lot of people have felt or feel that Mm. they can't achieve compliance leadership if they don't have a JD after their name. And I was just someone incredible set up this woman's lunch, this women's lunch at Compliance Week DC. Do you know who she was? Mary Shirley. Not quite true. Yes. So you had this women's lunch and I actually was at the table with a couple of wonderful women. And I must say also that our male allies um, Mm. and our other humans were there who were allies to women. So I loved Mm. that. But there were a couple of conversations that I had really frankly with people at the table Mm. who they were like, I just, I love compliance, but I just feel like I've hit a ceiling. I can't, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to be taken seriously as a leader. I think over the last couple of years, we have seen a shift here. Back in 2021, we actually, we run a compliance conference every year and we had a fireside chat with Wait at our conference and something that she said stuck with me. So she was asked, do you see an evolving generation where more CCOs are not lawyers? And who knows what she's going to say, but she's an attorney. She actually responded that she had hoped to see a more interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. approach to compliance Mm -hmm. and feels that it's beginning to change, Mm -hmm. albeit slowly, and that she'd love to see less dominance of the legalistic mindset, greater attention to the fact that we're operating in an environment where there's a diversity of different disciplines like the businesses we work for. And that has stuck with me. And so while I did start my career in legal, Mm-hmm. I am not a trained attorney. I don't have a JD while mm-hmm. I've been in legal and around attorneys my whole life and working with and for them. I'm also happy to report, though, that I'm not a unicorn. 
mm-hmm. as a non-attorney compliance leader anymore. I personally know people mm-hmm. in large organizations that are mm-hmm. not attorneys. And this conversation is actually really timely because I actually just read the FCPA blog today where Harry Casson, he wrote the piece, he was invited to Novartis's headquarters right. read mm-hmm. it. Um, while their enterprise risk and compliance team was meeting. So he interfaced with a gentleman named Brett Hudson. So Brett is the global head of corporate ethics and compliance and ERC governance. He is a Mm non-attorney who came up through the business over 15 years. And Harry had quoted him in saying, hey, sometimes it's tempting to see things as either black or white from a legal point of view. The legal side of things is very important, but handing down a legal rule book isn't sufficient to address ethical dilemmas and biases. And Harry went on to report that of the 20 ERC leaders he met, only four of them had law degrees, which I Mm. find fascinating following their path forward post-DPA. Yeah. So I think whether it's the wonderful people I met at the table at your compliance lunch in D.C. or anyone else listening, I think people always need to be reminded that the role of compliance, it's legal and compliance are really important, but it's not the same as legal. And Mm -hmm. it's to be an Mm -hmm. ally and a strategic partner with the business to understand how the business works and put into place realistic standards, controls, and monitoring in, uh, in all of our aspects of an effective compliance program, making sure that there's you can measure efficacy. It's about giving people the tools and resources and empowerment to, to do the right thing that goes beyond what the legal thing mm-hmm. to do is. How organizations should be and operate. Mm-hmm. Tell those people to keep partnering and being a strategic business partner and keep influencing the business in meaningful and good ways like they know how. And, uh, and I'm definitely proud to say that I have come up through the business for almost 20 years mm-hmm. and I found myself in compliance and people were like, well, are you going to go back to law school or get your law degree and actually considered it. But you know what? I didn't do it and I'm okay for it. I think that there's a lot, there's a lot both as a JD and a non-JD that mm. that someone can bring to the table. I totally agree. And I just realized I tried to guide us off the soapbox, but actually this is something that I feel really strongly about as well. And as someone who did train as a lawyer, I don't have a JD in your country. And sometimes that, that that makes a difference. I would like to remind everybody that alongside Harper, some of the other greatest women in the field do not have law degrees or JDs. And to name a few and just a few, Samantha Callan, Carrie Penman, Jackie Cheslow, Cindy Morrison. Really, there are a lot of people who have shown that you can be brilliant, carve your own space in compliance without being a lawyer. And so thank you, Harper, for that. Um, That diversity is so important. And I will be the first ally. And sometimes I'm not even your ally because me not having a JD doesn't count in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm right, right there with you in the same group. But I will be the first person to say that a law degree is not needed to practice in compliance and to reach the very top and my humble opinion, and I hope that if you disagreed with me on the training test out, that you agree with me on this front. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. not, of course, write that sternly worded letter to Harper. <laughs> Harper, that brings us to the end of the show. The time has gone super fast. Always a pleasure to chat with you and ruminate. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and everything that you contribute to the compliance community. Mary, thank you again so much for having me, and it was such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.